Chapter Twenty of Some Everyday Folk and Dawn by Miles Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alas, how easily things go wrong! On ascending to my room, I did not, as expected, find Dawn sobbing, but she had her face so determinedly turned away that I refrained from remark. I was none the worse for the diverting incidents of the evening because the excitement of them had come from without instead of within. The rush of the train soon became a faraway sound, and the light that flashed from their engine doors as they climbed to the first zig of the mountain, and which could be seen from my bed, had been shut from my sight by the fogs of approaching sleep, when I was aroused by heart-broken sobbing from the bed by the opposite wall. After a while I got out of bed, bent on an attempt to comfort. Dawn, what is it? "'Um, sorry I waked you. I thought you were sound asleep,' she said, pulling in with a violent effort, but speedily breaking into renewed sobs. "'I was thinking of poor little Mrs. Rooney Molyneux, and how my mother died,' said the girl, rolling over and burying her lovely head in her tear-drenched pillow. "'I can't help thinking about the sadness and cruelty of life to women.' I felt certain that a matter less deep and lying farther from the core of being was perturbing her more but as she chose to ignore it, I did likewise. Well, we must not dwell too sadly on that, for which we are not responsible, and women are privileged in being able to repay the cost of their being. Yes, I always remember that, and often shudder to think I might have been a man, with their greater possibilities of cowardliness and selfish cruelty, as illustrated by old Rooney and Miss Flipp's destroyer. Not a word concerning her action to Ernest. Thought of it stung too much for mention so there was nothing to do but comfort her till she fell asleep, and await from Ernest the next turn of events bearing on the situation. The next turn of events in the clay household bore down upon us next morning after breakfast, when Grandma came home, having left the first-born of Rooney Molyneux comfortably asleep in the swaddling clothes which had contained Dawn at the date when she had been a little whingeing thing, with whom everything had disagreed, and which garments were lent to the new-born babe until Grandma could provide him with others. The hale old dame was not too fatigued to be in a state of lively ire, and opened fire upon her circle with, I met old Hollis on the way home, and do you believe, he says to me, Well, Mrs. Clay, so I believe you've took to rabbit-catching in your old days. It was like his cheek, the same as when he said the monkeys would be having a vote next. Rabbit catching indeed. No wonder women has got sense at last to make the birth rate decline, when you see cases like that, and even the people that go to help them out of the fix, and that out of kindness, not for no reward nor pleasure, is demeaned to their face and called rabbit catchers, if you please. I reckon all women ought to be compelled to be rabbit catchers for a time, and it would be such an eye-opener to them that if there wasn't some alterations made in the tone of the whole business they would all strike so there'd be no need of rabbit-catching as some call it to make things more disagreeabler and that's what has been going on lately in an underhand way but some people concluded the intelligent old lady with her customary collar coming to a full stop ere recapitulating the misdoings of these unmentionable members of society Rabbit-catching, as midwifery is contemptuously termed in the vernacular, does require a status, and those who have need of it merit some consideration. Civilization, stretching up to recognize that every child is a portion of state wealth, 
may presently make some movement to recognise maternity as a business or office needing time and strength, not as a mere passing detail thrown in among mountains of other slavery. During the whole forenoon I busied myself with the construction of garments for the new arrival in this vale of woe, and at the same time was on the alert for the commanded appearance of Ernest Breslaw. Instead of himself, he sent as messenger a well-spoken lad who presented Mr. Ernest's compliments, and hoped that I was not feeling any ill effects from my unusual exertion during the previous evening. I sent a request, per return, that he should call upon me during the afternoon, but he did not regard it. The next being Dawn's day for Sydney, I waited for this event to hatch some progress in the case, but upon her return she had no favours to share with me, or merry tale to tell of being taken to afternoon tea by Ernest. Ewart figured in this account, and so prominently as to suggest that her talk of the fun she had had with him was a little forced. So, on the following morning, I took it upon myself to call upon the backward knight in his own castle. Unmooring one of the boats, I rowed with great caution, obliquely across the stream, till reaching for the desired pier, I tethered my craft and descended among an orange grove laden with its golden fruit, and between the rattling canes of the vineyard, dismantled by winter, till I reached the house where at present my young friend sojourned, and I was thankful that bleached as well as unfaded locks, having their own peculiar privileges, I was able to make this call with propriety. The young gentleman was in, and without delay appeared to the beautiful lady's self-directed and appointed ambassadress. "'I suppose I may pay you a visit,' I said with a smile, as he seated me in the drawing-room, which we had to ourselves. "'As you didn't seem to care whether I were dead or alive, I have come over to practically illustrate that I am still above ground. Why did you not come to see me?' Ernest reddened and fidgeted, and said haltingly, you know if you had been ill, I would have been the first to go to you. But I knew you were quite well, and I've been so busy, he finished lamely. Now, you know that I know that you have been idle, quite unendurably idle, I retorted, a remark he received in embarrassed silence, which endured till I broke it with, Well, I suppose you are waiting for me to divulge the real object of my pilgrimage, and that is to know why you haven't kept your agreement about making that little mistake as easy as you could for Miss Dawn. She's fretting herself pale about it. Ernest stood up, his colour flaming into his tan cheeks till they were as bright as his locks, while he made as though to speak once or twice, but hesitated, and at length exclaimed, This is not fair. You must, you have no reason to bother. You, and there he founded. Ernest could neither lie, snub, nor evade. He was totally devoid of all the attributes of a smart politician. "'Have you not sufficient faith in my regard for you to trust my motive in thus apparently seeking to pry into your private life?' I asked. "'You know I think more of you than anyone, and I'll tell you the whole thing,' he replied, taking a seat beside me. "'You have made a mistake in assuming that Miss Clay, or whatever her real name might be, his indifference was well assumed, did not fully mean her action, and I was a fool to believe you when I had more than sufficient proof to the contrary. Yesterday morning I happened to go to Sydney in the same train as she did, and as I happened, entirely by chance and quite unexpectedly, to meet her on the platform, I lifted my hat as usual to make it easy for her, and a nice fool I made of myself. 
she didn't merely pretend not to see me but hurried by me in contempt and came back with that eward who glared at me as though i were a tramp who had attempted to molest her i am sure you could not expect me to go farther than that and i only did that because you call her a friend of yours perhaps ewart doesn't do things that necessitate the throwing of dirty water on him it was rather an uncalled-for thing to do to any one perhaps the old dame doesn't allow her boarders to have visitors and that is the polite way they have of informing one to the contrary the sky looked rather murky i said nothing having nothing ready to say oh by the way i'm leaving here tomorrow for adelaide where i am to play in some intercolonial football matches against the new zealanders is there anything i could do for you over there he said as though having dismissed the other unworthy trifle from his mind going to run away because a girl half accidentally and half out of nervous irritation threw a little water on you there i had said what i really thought and half expected the snub which according to the rules of tact i deserved for my divergence therefrom but it did not come he was a man of the field and in this type of encounter had not a chance against one of my perceptions he laughed forcibly that would be something to turn tail for wouldn't it but are you not doing so if a beautiful girl did such a thing to me it would only make me the more set to woo her to graciousness i said perhaps so if she were some girl you specially considered but in the case of a passing stranger that i may never meet again it would not be worth wasting time especially as her action was so uncalled for and unwomanly but you are sure to meet her again if you continue our friendship as i hope to have her with me and that is why i am taking the trouble to thus interfere in what does not apparently concern either you or me very much i don't consider dawn as a passing stranger i think her especially honest and especially beautiful and it worries me to think she has thus erred her action was unwomanly if you like but peculiarly feminine with the unavoidable hysterical femininity engendered in women by their subjected environment are you quite sure you consider dawn merely a passing stranger not worth consideration i asked looking him fair in the eyes and the quick lowering of them and the tightening of his mouth satisfied me that he could not truthfully answer in the affirmative it is a matter of what she considers me he said oh well i said indifferently now that i had gained my point it doesn't matter to me but i'll be sorry to lose your company and i thought you were taking an interest in leslie's candidature and we could have enjoyed it together so i do well come back as soon as you get these matches played and we'll have some good times together again and i'll keep the reprehensible dawn out of the way and anyhow remember she didn't throw cold water on you and that's something very well i'll be back in about three weeks time to see how les gets on polling day hasn't been fixed yet i'd like to see it through now i've started of course said i considering it a good move that he should disappear for a short time and after this he rode me on the noon till clay's dinner bell sounded and i went up to eat that evening dora ewart came in to tea and remained afterwards he informed us that the red-headed chap who had been loafing around kelman's had gone to europe has he did he tell you interestedly inquired andrew he mentioned that he would leave for south australia by the express this evening i replied but did not add that his going to europe was a little stretched dawn was quiet her merry impudence did not enliven the company that night 
and after tea, when you had caught her alone for a few moments as I was leaving the room, he said, "'So you cleared the red-head mug out after all. Andrew says it was all right. You won't listen to me, but you haven't chucked the wash-up water on me yet. That's one thing.' His complacence was very pronounced. To his surprise, Dawn made no reply, but biting her lip to keep back her tears, walked out of the room, and in the dark of the passage smote her dimpled palms together, exclaiming, would to heaven I had thrown the water over this galoot instead of him! And the thermometer of Dora's self-satisfaction fell considerably when she did not appear again that evening. That night, when the waning moon got far enough on her westward way to surmount the old house on the knoll beside the Nanoon, and cast its shadow in the deep clear water, the silver beam strayed through a little window facing the great ranges, and found the features of a beautiful sleeper disfigured by weeping. But youth's rest was sound, despite the tear-stains, and the old moon smiled at such ephemeral sorrow. The night wind, coming down the gorges with the river, sighed along the valley as the moon remembered all the faces, which, though tearless under the nocturnal inspection, yet were pale from the inward sobs, only giving outward evidence in bleaching locks and shadowy eyes. Even within the sound of the engines roaring down the spur, Many of the little night-wrapped houses, hard set upon the plain, had inmates kept from sleep by deeper sorrows than Dawn had ever known. The first fortnight of Ernest's absence, believed by his doubting young lady to be final, was a stirring time in Nunoon, and particularly full at Clay's. Jam-making was the star item on the latter's domestic bill. Baskets and baskets of golden oranges and paler lemons and shaddocks were converted into jam and marmalade, and ranged on the shelves of the already replete storehouse, in readiness to tempt the summer palate of the weekend boarders, which should appear when the days stretched out again. We were occupied in this business to such an extent that the sight of oranges became a weariness, and Andrew averred that the very name of marmalade gave him the pip. At night we enjoyed the diversion of the meetings, and talk and gossip of them made conversation for the days. The previously mentioned political addresses were but mild fanfares by comparison with the flamboyance of the gasconading now in progress, and in its reports of these bursts of oratory the Nanoon advertiser gave further evidence of its broad-minded liberality. Mrs. Gasfranta, it reported, addressed a packed meeting in the Citizens' Hall last night, and proved herself the best public speaker who has been heard in Nanoon during the present campaign, and so on. It recognised worth and gamely gave the palm to the deserving, irrespective of party or sex, did not so much as insert the narrow quibble that she was the best for a woman. Among other incidents, the lady canvassers called at Clay's and received a piece of Grandma's mind. Thanks. I don't want no one to tell me how to vote. I've read two or three families and gave a hand with more, and have intelligence the same as others, and at my time of life don't want no one to tell me my business. I reckon I could tell a good many others how to vote. The pity of it was that it was immaterial how any electors cast their vote. Neither party had a sensible grip of affairs, and besides, love of country in a patriotic way is not a trait engendered in Australians. In politics, as in private life, all is selfishness. The city people thought only of building a greater Sydney. The residents of Nanoon and other little towns had mind for nothing but their own small centre all seeing no farther than their noses, 
or that what directly benefited their little want might not be good for the country at large, and that legislature must, to be successful, better the living conditions of the masses, not merely of one class or section. Then city men, unacquainted with the practical working of the land, could not possibly handle the land question effectively, and moreover a man might understand how to manage the coastal district and remain at sea regarding the great areas west of the watershed. Another big mistake lay in over-representation of the city and the under-representation of the man on the land. The producer should be the first care, and while he is woefully disregarded and ill-considered, a country cannot thrive. The reason of this state of affairs was the division of electorates on a population basis. This meant that a city electorate covered a very small area, and that practically all its wants were attended by the municipality, so that the city member had leisure to ply the trade of merchant, doctor or barrister within a few minutes of the House of Parliament, whereas the country member, to become acquainted with the vast area he represented, and the requirements of its inhabitants, and attend parliamentary sittings, had no time left to be anything but a member of Parliament, precariously depending upon re-election for livelihood. Dawn threw herself into the contest with great enthusiasm, and also industriously pursued her vocal studies, but for her was exceptionally subdued, and inclined to be cross on the smallest provocation. She had become so engrossed in political meetings that Dora Ewart, who was continually at Clay's since the retreat of Ernest, one day remonstrated with her. She had made a political meeting the excuse for declining to go rowing with him, whereupon he remarked, "'Oh, leave them to the old maid's dawn. You'll grow into a scarecrow that would frighten any man away if you hang on to politics much more.' "'Well, if it would frighten some men away, I'd go in for them twice as much,' snapped the girl. I suppose you admire the style of girls who are going around now saying after some straightforward women have said what we all feel and got the vote. Oh, I don't care for the vote. Let men rule. They are the strong vessel. Politics don't belong to women, and so on. You'd think me a sweet little womanly dear if I croaked like that. But you keep your brightest eye on that sort of squawker, and for all her noise about being content with her rights, You'll see that she takes more than her share of the good of the reforms that other women have worked for. Oh, Lord, good-temperedly giggled Dora, for home truths that would be considered sheer spleen from a plain girl are taken as fine fun when uttered by a girl as physically attractive as Dawn. During the second week of the footballer's absence, who should appear to lend a hand on the side of Leslie Walker but Mr. Paunch, uncle of the late Miss Flip? He arrived with the callousness worthy of a certain department of man's character, and addressed a meeting with as much pomp and self-confidence, and talk of bettering the morals of the people, as though he had been an Elise Hopkins. He had the further effrontery to visit Clay's and feign crocodile grief for the deplorable fate of his niece. He protested his shame and horror, together with a desire for revenge, so loudly that I resolved that he should not be disappointed that the dead girl should be in a slight measure avenged, and he should not only know, but feel it. "'I ain't got my voting paper. Me and Carrie will go up for em tomorrow,' said Grandma one evening from her armchair near the fireplace. There had been the usual meeting, and Ada Grosvenor and others had called in to discuss it. "'Why, didn't the police deliver yours?' inquired Miss Grosvenor. "'No, we was missed somehow.' 
easy to see danby wasn't on the racket of delivering electors rights or you would have had two or three apiece andrew chipped in i'm going for walker straight announced grandma his temperance at all events and that is something when there ain't any common sense in any of them if i had twenty votes i wouldn't give one to that walker said andrew all the women are after him because they think he's good-looking and he's got bandy legs they clap him like fury and look around like that as eat any one that goes to ask him a question they seem to reckon he's an angel that oughtn't to be asked nothing he can't answer i believe they'd all kiss him and marry him if they could i hate him vote for henderson he wouldn't give women the vote and only men are working on his committee oh my what's this exclaimed dawn well you know the women are making fools of themselves about this walker said ada grosvenor with her intelligently humorous laugh i don't think much of him myself in spite of his choice phrasing of the usual hustings bellowing if women had not already the franchise he would be slow to admit them on a footing of equality with men as regards being there are two extremes of men you know one thinks that woman's position in life is to act score to her lord and master the other regards her as a toy an article to be handed in and out of carriages like choice china a drawing-room ornament to be decked in wonderful gowns and whose whole philosophy of existence should be to add to the material delight of men walker is representative of the latter type and old hollis who thinks that monkeys have as good a right to vote as women belongs to the other at a service glance their views regarding women seem to be diametrically opposed but to me it has always appeared that they equally serve the purpose of degrading the position of women you should have seen how cruel walter looked to-night when an old man asked if he approved of women entering the senate he said no like a clap of thunder it was probably this perspicacity on the part of ada grosvenor coupled with a sense of humour that earned for her the reputation of trying to ape the swells well good-night everybody and mrs clay don't forget to apply for your right in time or you won't be able to vote she said in parting no fear responded grandma i've not been counted among mad people and criminals and done out of me simple rights till this time of life without appreciating em when i've got em at last next day true to intention the old dame and carrie went uptown for their voting papers and to repeat the former's words was downright insulted so to speak the civil servant whose duty it was to give rights to those electors who were not already in possession of such was carrying affairs with a high hand and had the brazen effrontery to tell grandma clay that it was a disgrace to see a woman of her years running after a vote as he elegantly expressed it and he also suggested to carrie that it would suit her better to be at home doing her housework and to put the cap on his gross misconduct he persuaded them that they had left it too late to obtain the coveted document the first outward and visible proof that men considered their women complete rational beings carrie had retorted that it would suit him better to do the work he was paid for than to exhibit his ignorance in meddling with the private affairs of others and that if he could discharge his duties as well as she did her housework he wouldn't make an ass of himself by showing his fangs about women having the vote in the way he did the two electresses thus bluffed came down the street and told their grievance to mr oscar lawyer for the nonce head of the opposition league and at ordinary seasons a father of his people to whom all the town made in times of necessity whether it was an old beldame requiring assistance from the benevolent society or a lad seeking a situation and requiring a testimonial of character 
With Mr. Oscar Lawyer they also ran upon Mr. Paunch, and it was discovered that the churlish clerk's statement was utterly false, and made because he was on the side of Henderson, and these two women were not. There was more talk than there is space for here, but the upshot of it was the clerk was routed, and Grandma and Carrie came home triumphantly, each in possession of one of the magic sheets of blue paper which they spread out on the table for us all to see. "'Well, well,' said Grandma, "'I've seen the convicts flogged in days when this was nothing but a colony to ship them to, and I drove coaches when the line was only as far out of Sydney as here. And to think I should have lived to see the last of the convicts gone, coaches nearly become a novelty of the past, us calling ourselves a nation, and here a paper in me hand to show I can vote a man into this Parliament and the other that the king's son himself come out to open i'm glad to see us lived that we can have our say in the laws now same as the men and not have to swallow anything they like to put upon us to suit theirselves said the old dame with a splendid light in her eye rubbed the creases out of the paper and spread it out again pooh it's the same as we've had all along you didn't think a elector's right was anything to be grinning at when the men had it. I never seen you gapin' at mine. You'd think it was something wonderful now when you've got one of your own, said Uncle Jake coming in. Well, I never, Jake Sorrel. Of course we don't think much of other people's things. What is the good of another woman's baby or a husband or frying pan? That is, if it was equally a thing you couldn't borrow. And if you was blind, what pleasure would you get out of someone else seeing the blue sky, or warning that there was a snake there to be trod on? And that's what it's been like with the elector's rights. Well, but what difference does that bit of paper make to you now? You won't live no longer, nor find your appetite no better, and it won't pay the taxes for you, contended Uncle. Then if it is of so little account, why does it gruel you so much to see me with it? And little as it is, there ain't that paper's reason why we shouldn't have always voted. And little though it is, that's all the difference has stood all these years between men voting and women not. And little as you think it is for a woman to have done without, it's what men would shed their blood for if they was done out of it. It ain't what things actually are, it's all they stand for. And Grandma gathered up her right and went to take off her bonnet and change the bristling black dress which she donned for public appearance. I sat musing while she was away. It ain't what things actually are, it's all they stand for, as the old dame had said, and her delight in being a freed citizen no longer ranked with criminals and lunatics had touched my higher self more profoundly than anything had had power to do for years though taking a vivid interest in the electioneering owing to the large distillation of the essence of human nature it afforded as neither of the candidates had a practical grip of public business i cared not which should poll the highest but now i resolved to procure my right and go to the ballot and if nothing more make an informal vote for the sake of all that it stood for at back of the simple paper were arrayed the spirits of countless noble and fearless men and women who had so loved justice and their fellows that they had spent their lives in working for this betterment of the conditions of living, and the little paper further stood for an improvement in the position of women, and consequently of all humanity, inconceivable to cursory observation. As for a woman going to the poll and voting for Jones or Smith, 
that was harmless in either case, and would not help her live or die or pay her debts, as Uncle Jake expressed it. But accepting the female vote for the House of Keys in the Isle of Man, the enfranchisement of women, spreading from one to the other of the Australian states, represented the first time that woman, even in our vauntedly great and highly civilised British Empire, was constitutionally, statutably recognised as a human being, equal with her brothers. That women shall compete equally with men in the utilitarian industrialism of every walk of life is not the ultimate ideal of a universal adult franchise. Such emancipation is sought as the most condensed and direct method of abolishing the female sex disability, which in time shall bring the human intelligence, regardless of sex, to an understanding of the superiority of the mother sex as it concerns the race. As it is the race, the whole race, and consequently worthy of a status in life where it shall neither have to battle at the poles for its rights, nor be sold in the marketplace for bread. The empty-headed cannot be expected to perceive the magnitude of this upward step in the evolution of man, and its machinery may not run smoothly for a span. We, nor our children's children, may not know much benefit from what it symbolises, but shall we who are comfortable in rights wrested from ignorance and prejudice, but never enjoyed by past generations, be too selfish and small to rejoice in the possibility of bettered conditions those ahead may live under as the fruits of the self-sacrificing labour of those now fighting for their ideals? No. End of chapter 20